in Luke chapter 22, and it takes us to three distinct locations. So today we're going to look at the upper room, the Garden of Gethsemane, and then Caiaphas, his home, his residence. Uh, those are going to be the three key areas. Now, in those three locations, there's going to be three themes that we're going to see, not, not respectively or exclusively to each of those locations, but there are three themes that we see appearing over and over in chapter 22. Here's the themes. Betrayal, denial, and rejection. Betrayal, denial, and rejection. If, if, if chapter 22 could be summed up in three words, that would be it. Betrayal, denial, and rejection. So before we jump into the narrative, here's what I want us to do. I want to have a working definition uh, of the word betrayal. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, let me give you uh, some dictionary definitions, then, I'm gonna, then we're going to look at a, a really good definition. Uh, <laughs> there, I looked up in, in the betrayal and some of the dictionaries. Oxford Dictionary was no help whatsoever. Uh, here's what it says. I kid you not, this is Oxford Dictionary. You Google it, you type in de define betrayal. Oxford Dictionary says the act of betraying one's country, a group, or a person. Well, what good is that if, if I knew what betrayal was, and then you turn around and use betraying in the definition, this circular definition. You know, you, you're not, it's, it's no help. Uh, Webster was no better. Uh, Webster did the same thing. The act of betraying someone or something, or the, the fact of being betrayed, that's the definition of betrayal. Well, I, you have a little bit more digging and you're able to find a meaningful definition, something that's a little bit more helpful uh, of the word betrayal. Uh, so this, this, this is going to help us to navigate um, this idea of betrayal. So here's a, a working definition for us. On the screen, uh, the definition of betrayal. Betrayal is the exploitation of another person's virtues. Betrayal is the exploitation of another person's virtues. You know, the more I thought about it this week, and these three words came very early on in, my, in my, my studies and looking at chapter 22, and I wrote down these three words, and as I studied them, as I thought about how they play out in Luke chapter 22, the more that I thought about betrayal, the more I realized how the act of betrayal is dependent upon the moral virtue of the person being betrayed. In other words, it's hard to betray someone who is skeptical, critical, judgmental, or just outright not trusting. Now, why is that? Because they keep people at an arm's length. You, you know, if someone is not trust, they didn't trust you to begin with, then it's hard to betray them. You know, so there's something about the virtue of the person who has been betrayed that plays a role. It's not just the fact that someone has betrayed them. It's the fact that the person that has been betrayed possesses a virtue that is worthy of being betrayed. They're doing something. Their, their, their values, their, their virtues are, are what's at stake. So, <laughs> consider the act of adultery. I mean, think about this for a moment. When I started to think about betrayal and some of the things that I've seen and observed and some of the things that we're aware of in our culture, consider adultery. Adultery, it is what? It's the exploitation of another person's trust, love, and faithfulness. That's what it is. It is the exploitation of that. The other person has the virtues of they trusted you. 
the person had a, a, uh, a virtue of they, they are faithful to you, and they love you, and they demonstrated those things, and someone commits an act of betrayal that exploited those very virtues. So when we consider other things, I considered uh, politicians. Boy, that one wasn't very difficult, was it? To, uh, you think about this. Can, do we see betrayal there? Consider politicians and their abuse of power. What is it? It is the exploitation of the people's trust. That's what it is. They're exploiting the fact that people have trusted them, elected them, and placed them into office, and then they do what? They exploit it for personal gain. That is betrayal. So the pain that's often associated with betrayal, it cuts deep. It hurts. I've watched um, family members that have gone through betrayal through um, adultery, and it cuts deep. I've watched, I've watched it, I've observed it. And it cuts deep because it is an exploitation of the moral standards and virtues that we hold closest to our hearts. We have demonstrated trust. We have demonstrated love and faithfulness, and we have poured ourselves into those things. And then the other person didn't see the value in your virtue. They didn't see the value in what you're bringing to the table. And as a result, what happens? Betrayal. And it cuts deep. So let's begin then with key point number one, and we'll turn to the scriptures. Key point number one for us this morning is this. Betrayal undervalues the virtue of others. Betrayal undervalues the virtue of others. Let's begin. Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 23. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill Jesus, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. Now we'll make a brief pause here because I want you to notice something that was pointed out to me several years ago that is worthy of noting. In our culture today, we don't, um, you know, spiritual matters, demons, angels, it's not talked about a whole lot. Scripture is very clear that those things exist, that there are demons, there are angels. Uh, and we talk about demon possession. But here, Judas is not demon possessed. He is satanic possessed. Consider that. He doesn't have a demon that's possessing him. Look at it, what it says. Then Satan entered Judas. This is not demonic possession. This is satanic possession. Satan himself has said, this person I am entering and I am going to take possession of him. That's a pretty scary thought, which makes me wonder then throughout history, some of the, the, the most terrible uh, people historically who have committed terrible crimes makes me wonder were they not just maybe demon-possessed, but were they, in fact, satanically possessed? And that's very likely because we see an example of it right here in Scripture where Judas was not just possessed by a demon. Judas was possessed by Satan himself. That's how Satan was like, I'm not going to give this over to a demon. That's how important it was to Satan. Satan says, I am going to enter Judas. I am going to handle this myself. Verse 4, so he went his way, this is referring to Judas, 
and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. Now, I want you to notice that it was Judas who sought out the chief priest. Judas was the one who went to them and said, hey, what, what, can, what can we do? We're going to come back to that in just a little bit. Verse 6, so he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Keep in mind, they didn't want the multitude to see this. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready. So they went and found it just as Jesus said to them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. Then Jesus said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold... The hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it, would, it, it was who would do this thing. Now, Matthew, in Matthew's gospel account, he actually tells us again that Judas was the one that sought out uh, the priest, the chief priest, he, he went to them and he asked them, hey, what are you willing to give me? What are you willing to give me uh, if I hand him over to you? And as a result, they did what? They counted out 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. Here's what it did for me. What, when, I, when I read that, it made me wonder a couple of things. It made me wonder, what would the value of 30 pieces of silver have been in first century, what, was, what would that have been? What would, what would that have been considered? Well, some sources put it at about $10 a piece. For, if there's 30 pieces, $10 a piece. Some scholars say it could be about $300, $300. On the higher end, and that was probably the most common. On the higher end, uh, some said maybe $20, $20 a piece. Uh, so then you're lock, talking maybe maybe $600. So let's go high end. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt and, 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 and go high end that they went $20. Um, that's pretty insignificant amount of money. Uh, we're talking about six, 600 bucks. I don't know what the going rate for betrayal was in first century, uh, but uh, 600 bucks seems like, eh, you know, it's, it's not a lot. So 
So he's got 600 bucks. Keep in mind, 600 bucks is probably going to go a lot farther in first century than it would today. Uh, but nonetheless, it's not, it's not a ton of money. In fact, here's why we know it's not a lot of money. Uh, because it fulfills a prophecy, a prophecy in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 11 uh, tells us, uh, a prophecy tells us and, and actually points us to these 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah himself, a prophet, uh, is, talks about in chapter 11 taking on the role of the shepherd. And he is feeding the flock of sheep that are being prepared for slaughter. In other words, they're being prepared for what? For sacrifice, just like Passover. They're being prepared for that very purpose. But I want you to listen to what, what it says. This is Zechariah chapter 11. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. In other words, look, I've done all of this work and fed the sheep and taken care of them. Um, give me, give me my, my wage. And he says, that, you know, if it's agreeable to you, give me, give me my wage. If not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That princely price they set on me. Now, princely price, there's a little sarcasm. Because this is, this is not something you would, this is something you throw to, you know, this is, this, it's an insult, really. I mean, he's done all of this work and it, it's an insult. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Now, if you are familiar with what happens to the 30 pieces of silver at this point, you see that this is being played out in the time of Jesus where that same 30, the, the 30 coins, pieces of silver are going to be thrown, uh, thrown out, and then they're going to be used to do what? Purchase a potter's field. So it's tying very well back in to Zechariah. But when we look at, at Zechariah, what do we discover from that narrative? It was an insult. In fact, if you had 30 pieces of silver, that's what you would do to buy a slave. That was, it was considered insult. It was considered, um, yeah, you, you don't give this, this is not a, a wage that you give someone who's worked for something. That's not what you do. And, it, and so what does he do? He's like, here, throw it. He throws it. It's insignificant. Now, I'd have a hard time throwing 30 $20 bills at somebody, but uh, that's just me. Uh, but here's what we see. The whole point of it is what? It is way undervaluing the work that was done. When we see what Judas has done, the betrayal, what he's doing is he is accepting something that has little value in comparison to what he is about to betray. When you consider the virtue of Jesus and the work that Jesus has accomplished in his ministry and what he's going to do on the cross, the value of Jesus and his virtue and what he brings far exceeds anything that you could betray him for. So we see, we see that very thing playing out. So what does all of that mean for us? May we never undervalue what Jesus has done for us. May we never undervalue that. That's exactly what Judas did. He didn't place value on what Jesus was doing. Judas instead, uh, he would rather have 30 $20 bills. 
that's going to be gone, that's going to, that's going to be spent and nothing to show for it in comparison to what Jesus brings and what Jesus offers. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. And there is no amount of money that could repay him for what he's done. Why? Because he didn't send the sheep to the slaughter. He sent himself. He sent himself there. He gave himself to be slaughtered. What an incredible sacrifice. Let's pick back up verse 24. Now, there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Boy, have we not seen this over and over? You know, the disciples are, what are they doing? Here's essentially what they're doing. And keep in mind, Judas would have been, you know, part of this, these debates too. Judas would have said, hey, I want to I be in charge. It's almost as if to say, hey, when the kingdom comes, you know, I want, I want this lead role. I want to make sure that I can do this. And I can. So they had this uh, constant, uh, I'm going I'm to be second in charge. I'm going I'm to be, you know, I'm going to do, and they were constantly doing it. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater? He who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Now, let's pause there just for a moment. Two quick notes. One is the word you, where he says, uh, Satan has asked for you. The word you is, in, in Greek there, is plural. So, even though he addresses Simon, he uses the plural for you, like in the South, we say y'all. Uh, it, it's the plural, right? It's the, uh, it's the plural. So, he is addressing Simon but he is making an application to who? All of them. All of the disciples. Satan has requested to sift all of you guys like wheat. The second observation, quickly, is this. Sifting wheat is not necessarily difficult work, uh, but it does take time. So what is Satan saying? Satan is saying, listen, I've got, I've got time. I will. What, what does sifting do? Tears it apart. It, it, it separates the edible grain from the chaff. So what is Satan saying? I want to rip them apart. I want to separate them. I want to, I want to, I want to do so. He's not saying I want to make you usable uh, like edible grain. He's saying, and I, I am going to be patient and do the work however long it takes me. And that's what Satan has said. He, is going, he wants to sift them like wheat. But I have prayed for you. This is Jesus talking to the disciples. I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said 
But he said to him, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you guys lack anything? So they said, nothing. And he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Wow, well, well that's kind of interesting, isn't it? What is Jesus? It sounds like Jesus is doing what? He's saying, get ready for battle. Get ready for battle. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the cross. He's going to be numbered. There's one, two, three, three crosses. And Jesus is one of those numbers. He's numbered among the transgressors. He's numbered among the thieves. That's who he is. And that's a, that's a, a prophecy. For the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. So they've already said, all right, we're ready for battle. We got two. And he said, it is enough. Now let's pause there for a second. Let me ask you a question. Are two swords enough for a war? <laughs> are two, yeah, Jesus said, that's enough. That's all you need. <laughs> Do you, know, do you not just kind of scratch your head there for a moment and go, two is enough for a war? Two? Listen, two is not enough for a war, is it? I mean, that, you can look at that and go, there's no way. There's no way two is enough for a war. But what is two enough of? Two would be more than enough if it's going to be used as an instrument for Jesus to perform the miracle. If Jesus, if something's going to happen with one of those swords, and then Jesus is going to perform a miracle because of what happens with one of those swords, then someone says, hey, we've got two swords, and you go, yeah, that's enough. <laughs> it's more than enough. You only need one to chop somebody's ear off, right? That's more than enough. Two is not enough for a war, but one enough. Two is enough. Two is plenty to accomplish the purposes that, God's have, that God has to, to, to accomplish his miracles in this moment. So as we look through this passage, as we consider betrayal, and the stage has now been set, may we never find ourselves undervaluing Jesus. May we never undervalue that. 